Welcome to the Hope New Podcast, a podcast for parents of children impacted by disabilities, where we believe there's beauty in the journey and purpose in the pain. Your hosts are Jonathan and Sarah McGuire. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Jonathan. In today's podcast, we're interviewing Jolene Philo, and we're discussing her book, Does My Child Have PTSD? Yes, it is such a great book and very practical. Definitely. And as an adult... I can think back on times where I've been traumatized. Uh, For example, one night we were woken up from a super deep sleep to the sound of the sheriff banging on our door. Apparently, one of our cows had been hit on the road. Now, for months after that, whenever I'd hear a siren or see the flashing lights of a police car, my body would immediately go into that fight-or-flight mode, and my heart would start racing. I can easily look back on that and recognize how it impacted me but it can be just as easy to ignore how situations may have impacted our children's development. Right? When we think of trauma and PTSD as it relates to our children, our first instinct is to relate it back to abuse or something like that, so it might be tempting to say this episode doesn't apply to you. That can be very far from the truth. Trauma can stem from many different sources and can even go back to the time when our child was in utero. It doesn't mean that we are bad parents. When our kids experience it, but it can definitely impact their development. I love this book, and this interview with Jolene will be so helpful because she breaks it down, she makes it easy to understand, and gives very actionable steps. If you think your child may be dealing with this, or if you don't think so, but there's something you just can't put your finger on going on with your child, stick with us. This episode is for you. Jolene, welcome to our podcast today. Well, thank you for having me, Jonathan. It's great to be with you again. Yeah, we're so excited about this. I remember last time that we had you on here, we talked about your book, Does My Child Have PTSD? Or actually, we alluded to it, and we put the hope out there that someday we'd get a chat about this further. And so today's the day, and we're excited about it. And I know um, this is such a needed topic. So, yeah, thanks again. Like I said, it's really good to be with you. And you too, Sarah. Hi. Hello. So I love this book, and I'm excited that we finally get to talk about it. It has so much information and hope in an easily-to-consume format that can help so many people. Oh, good. I'm glad you think that because that's exactly why I wrote it and how I tried to write it so it would be easy to understand. Well, it shows. You succeeded. To start us off, what inspired you to write this book? Well, how long do you have to talk about that? I'll do the short version. Um, Our son was born in 1982 and had a life-threatening condition that required surgery at birth, a long way from where he was born. Um, So we were separated from him. He had that surgery. We learned many years later that back in 1982, when newborns had surgery, they weren't given pain medication. So he had this very extensive surgery done where he was paralyzed, given a paralytic, but was awake and feeling all the Mm. pain. Uh, And then he felt his pain throughout his recovery in NICU, which lasted about two and a half weeks. He made a rock star recovery. We took him home. He did well for two months. There were complications at two months. To make a long story short, by the time he was five, he'd had seven surgeries and all sorts of oral procedures and tests and all sorts of things done to him. He had another surgery at 15. Other than that, those surgeries, he did very, very well. Uh, But when he entered about junior high, we started noticing some behavior issues and didn't know what they were. And it wasn't until he was 26 that we were able to put all the pieces together and realize that he was suffering from trauma caused by all that early medical 
intervention that saved his life. And that trauma had never been treated and we needed to do something for him. And we were able to find a treatment facility in um, Morgantown, West Virginia, near where he was living at the time. And after a week of intensive treatment, he was much more able to cope with this world in a much better place than he had been in before that. Now, years later, he's married, he has kids, he's got a job, he's a, a loving son, and so he's doing very well. He still has PTSD but he's learned a lot more about how to cope with it and how to deal with it when the symptoms arise. A few years after our son went through treatment there, our our future son-in-law went there for some treatment on my advice. And I went along that time because I thought, there's a book in this that somebody needs to write because Mm -hmm. why don't people know that kids can have PTSD and be treated for it. So I interviewed all the people at the clinic while I was there, got reading lists and started working on the book. And then eventually, Does My Child Have PTSD came out. Wow. What a what a story. What a background. I'm so glad to hear that your son's doing doing so much better now. Has the has the tools to help with the PTSD. Yes, I've learned to make sure that goes at the end of the story because at first I would just tell about the journey and I would then move on and somebody would inevitably say, "Wait, wait, wait." What happened to your son? Right. How, is, How he is he now? now? So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hopes, uh, yeah, have that, that lingering, you know, hanging in yeah. suspense, you know, so that's good. Well, it's so wonderful for parents to hear the full story. Yes, it is. And that right there is hope that they maybe, yes. maybe didn't have otherwise. Yeah, exactly. definitely. Now, as we look at PTSD, uh, you also use the term trauma, um, it would probably be beneficial for our audience to just have the base understanding of what trauma is. How, how would you define trauma? Okay, trauma, I, I give several definitions in the book, and I should remind everyone that I'm a mom, and I'm a former teacher, and I'm a writer. I am not a mental health care therapist or doctor. So I am taking what other professionals in the mental health care field have learned, and I'm kind of interpreting it for you. So trauma is just... When something happens, and it can happen to a child, it can happen to an adult, something happens that just overwhelms a person in their body. So they're physical, they're feeling a sense of physical overwhelm, mental overwhelm, and emotional overwhelm. And we all have trauma that happens to us. You know, those things that happen that just like, we just can't handle it. And then if we're given a little bit of time and are able to get out of the situation and process it, it goes away and we can move on with our lives. Now, my favorite definition for children is one that comes from Margaret Vasquez, who is a traumatologist and who works with children. And she says, trauma for kids is the scary, yucky, painful parts of childhood. Mm -hmm. And when we think of trauma in relation to children, we have to look at it through their eyes. So it may not seem painful, yucky, or scary to you or I as an adult, but if I was three or if I was five or if I was a newborn, it very well could be yucky, scary, and painful. And that's trauma for kids. Now, trauma and PTSD aren't the same thing. And we all go through trauma. We don't all develop PTSD. PTSD happens when that overwhelming situation gets stuck in our brain and we can't get past it. It's there as if it's always in the present. And if there's ever a trigger, something that reminds us of the original trauma, we respond as though it was the original trauma again. And 
unless we have someone who can kind of talk us down, talk us through, make sure we're safe, help us process it as often as we need to until we realize it's over. We don't need to be scared of it anymore. We're out of that situation. If, if we don't have that kind of support, it can turn into PTSD. And if some of those original reactions to the situation keep occurring, some of those symptoms like startle or a wanting to run away or nightmares or whatever it might be, if those symptoms continue more than three months after the original trauma occurred, then it's called PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. And that's according to the DSM, the Diagnostics and Statistical Manual number five. Well, that's, excellent. Yeah, that's very helpful. Yes. And I love her definition of trauma for kids. That's a I know. perfect it's so definition. Good. I, I, another thing I tell people is like, Trauma and PTSD, the difference is like the difference between if you skin your knee and somebody, when you're a kid, you know, we all skin our knees and there's usually a grown up who comes along and helps us clean it off and picks out the gravel that gets under the skin and disinfects it and puts on a bandage and then they check on it every day to make sure it's healing okay. And then eventually it goes away. That skin knee doesn't bother us anymore. Same is true with trauma if we've got someone to help us through it. But if that treatment, isn't given, that dirty skin knee can become an infected skin knee Mm -hmm. and it becomes systemic. It can affect all the systems in our body, you know, and it can even become life-threatening because of blood poisoning or whatever. And that's the difference. If, If we leave trauma untreated, it's kind of like infected trauma and that PTSD creeps into all of our thinking, all of our behaviors, it can even affect our health and make us sicker than we would be without that. Yeah, that's a excellent analogy. That's a very good comparison. Yeah, I like it too, partly yeah. because I was a teacher and I saw a lot of skin knees. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah, we actually use an analogy very similar to that in our courses as we talk through some of these issues and how to deal with the tough mm-hmm. things of life. Yeah. Okay, people most often associate PTSD with soldiers or situations of abuse. Who is most susceptible to experiencing PTSD? Uh, Well, it can be anyone. It can be children and adults. And I think the defining factor is that anyone who's without the ability, personal ability, or the support to process that trauma and release the physical, emotional, and mental energy that gets trapped in the brain If they aren't able to do that, then they're susceptible to PTSD. Now, with children then are more susceptible than adults because children are more vulnerable. They're smaller. They have fewer skills. They don't have as much language. They don't have the experience to know that you can get over these things and move on with life. And they depend upon the very definition of being a child in childhood is a time when you are dependent upon someone else to provide the structure that you aren't big enough, strong enough, and experienced enough to provide for yourself. So children are particularly susceptible. Uh, Other risk factors include the frequency of the trauma. If someone goes through trauma after trauma after trauma, kind of like my son with all the medical trauma, that will make them more likely to develop PTSD. Some of it is personality. There are just some personalities that are more sensitive to that kind of thing and and just feel things more deeply. They may be more susceptible to developing PTSD. Uh, If you have a poor support system, 
whether you're a child, you know, and, and you maybe don't have parents who are as caring as they might be, or you just, or you have a parent who has overwhelmed him or herself, maybe a, a single parent or parents that are living in poverty or just don't have the resources they need to support you, that could cause it. I mentioned the younger you are, if you're in a culture of trauma, which includes poverty and racism and some of those things. And then finally, just if your trauma doesn't get treated, then you're more likely to get PTSD. Infants before and after birth can't remember the trauma. So can they still be traumatized at that age? Uh, There is more and more research saying that they can. And there's a couple things that we need to address in that question. First of all, they don't remember the way we as adults remember, but they do remember. We have two kinds of memory. All people have two kinds of memory, and we're born with one of them, and that's our implicit memory. And that's the memory of sounds and smells and visual images and physical pain and cold and heat and comfort and all those kinds of things. Those create implicit memories, and we are all creating implicit memories all the time. But those memories are never, they're never verbal. They are not remembered with words. They're more like impressions and feelings and like biases where like, oh, you know, I've just never liked the color green. (laughs) And you may not realize that something happened to you when you were a kid and the color green was associated with that event. So you don't like green or a smell that brings back a bad memory. Those are implicit. So all of us have those from birth on. Then explicit memory, which is what we usually think of as remembering, begins when you're around the age two. And that's that movie reel of our life when we look back and we can kind of see the events of our life unfolding. The problem is we all think that's what memory is. We don't account for the implicit memory. So we don't think that children three or younger are developing memories but they are. So uh, that's why we can be traumatized. So if a trauma happens when you're younger, you remember it, that you remember it in all those nonverbal ways. And children before birth can be traumatized. There is more and more evidence showing what newborns already know when they're born. And one of the things they know is their mother's voice. There's research that shows that at birth, the baby will turn to its mother and not the other adults in the delivery room. Uh, And so they are obviously hearing things when they're in utero. And so if there's trauma happening around them or to the mother, they can have memories of that and be traumatized. And then also because they're in utero, if the mother is going through a trauma, her cortisol and her adrenaline, those stress hormones are going to rise when she goes through a trauma and those go through the umbilical cord. So the baby will have a higher cortisol and adrenaline level too. So those are other ways that unborn children become more sensitive to trauma. So yes, kids can be traumatized at any age. I think I hear a lot of like light bulb moments going off for people, you know, where I think as moms, we sense something, we know there's something there, but we don't always know what or how to define it. Or we have scientists telling us it's not possible. And yet as moms, we, we know there's something. Yeah. um, I have a dear friend who has a, well, I met her when her daughter was 12 and her daughter was adopted and they were excellent adoptive parents. 
but they got the call that this baby was waiting for them at a hospital and they weren't able to get there for about a day just because situationally. And so that little baby, I, and I think the birth mother didn't want to see the baby again. So that little baby had gone through the trauma of birth, which is kind of, you know, you go from a nice warm womb and a mom's voice that you're familiar with into a brightly lit area and then into a, you know, a little isolate that's kind of hard and maybe the room is kind of bright and then you don't have that mom's voice anymore. So, so that was kind of traumatic for her. And then she didn't get to meet her new parents for a while. My friend who was the adoptive mother said from the minute she picked up her daughter, she knew she was just an anxious baby. Mm. She just, you know, was clinging to her. And it wasn't until her daughter went through some trauma treatment when she was 12 that they really saw some turnaround in those behaviors. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So how does early trauma affect a child's development? It can affect it in a number of ways, but I think a lot of it is their emotional development, I think, can be really uh, stunted or get stuck. Because what happens to us if we have trauma when we're very young and it doesn't get treated, when we go through the trauma, the baby figures out a way to get through the situation. And so whenever that trauma is triggered again as they get older, they revert back to those same behaviors. And so they act much younger than they are. So for example, when my son had surgery when he was very young, whatever triggered that as he got older, he was going to respond like he did when he was a baby. Well, number one, as the older you get, the less socially acceptable and age appropriate that is. <laughs> and, and number two, when that keeps happening and happening and happening, you can't learn the skills that are appropriate for the age you are now. So here's an example. My, um, my grandson, who is now four, had kind of a difficult birth. Um, and his parents began to su- suspect as he got a little older, and this is my daughter's son, not my, not my son's son. Um, his parents began to suspect that this difficult birth had left him with some unprocessed trauma for a couple reasons. And number one was that he refused to ever, ever be alone in a room anywhere. He could not sleep alone when he was an infant. And as he got older, like if, as he was being potty trained, if he had to go in and use the, the, the potty chair, he insisted on having the door open at all times. He couldn't even, having his parents put him in his car seat, shut the door and go around to the driver's side, freaked him out. Hmm. That's really inappropriate behavior as he gets older. We were able to work with him, were able to help him process that trauma eventually when he was about three. And within two months, he was fine being in a room all by himself, wherever. So that's just kind of one example of how you get stuck. If you're a young child and you've been traumatized, you're going to get stuck in some of those behaviors and you just can't move on to the next thing until you get rid of that barrier, or you figure out a way around the barrier, but that's not as healthy, as effective, or probably as behaviorally appropriate as it should be. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, would you say- I guess what I would say is that they're not meeting their emotional milestones. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, that's very helpful. That's a good way Um, to put it. 
Now, does that change, or do the signs of PTS, PTSD, do they change as the children grow from through the different stages, you know, from children to preteen to teens, or does it stay pretty consistent, or what, what does um, that look like? The, yeah, the symptoms, which are really just behaviors, those behaviors do change as they get older. In fact, the DSM, which I mentioned before, the Diagnostics and Statistical Manual Number 5, there was a big movement before that revision came out of parsing out and having PTSD as a diagnosis for adults, and then one called childhood developmental trauma as a different diagnosis Mm. for children. And there are a couple reasons for that. One, children who go through a lot of early trauma, it really changes the wiring of their brain because that brain wiring is still developing as when it happens to an adult and their brain wiring is pretty set. But the second reason is because the symptoms and behaviors look so different. So if you've got a child, uh, the younger they are, the more different they look. In in both cases, when you're talking about symptoms in the DSM, they are divided into three categories. There are intrusive symptoms, and those are like when you think of it as when the memory of the original trauma is triggered that memory intrudes upon the present and causes some certain behaviors. And very often in young children, in babies, you're going to see that mostly as sleep disturbances. And in fact, as children get older, they are still sleep disturbances. And even in adults who have PTSD, sleep issues are a big symptom that someone's got unresolved trauma. So um, your baby, if you've got a baby they don't, it's hard to get them to go to sleep. And then it's hard for them to stay asleep because as soon as they kind of start drifting off or go to sleep, those memories intrude as like nightmares and they're awake again. And so they have very poor sleep patterns. The same is true then as their toddlers, as their children, and it becomes more and more discrepant with their age, the older they get. And then, you know, you think of adults too, that just can't, they'll get to sleep at night, but if they wake up, they can't go back to sleep because the memory of that trauma keeps going in their mind. So nightmares, flashbacks, those kinds of things are all intrusive symptoms. Daydreaming, as you get children that are maybe in uh, elementary school, can be a symptom of, of uh, trauma. And those are all intrusive. The next category is arousal. Once that memory has intruded, then the body and the person goes into a state of high alert, where it's like danger, danger, Will Robinson, let's look around, what's here, what's going on? So with a baby, those arousal symptoms will be, they're very fussy. And as they advance into more childhood, it's that same kind of thing. Um, They might have a lot of digestive issues, stomach aches, headaches, and the stomach aches are, you know, if you're anxious and if you're worried something terrible is going to happen, you have a knot in your stomach and it hurts. And it doesn't matter that it's not caused by a germ. It's caused by a memory and anxiety, and it hurts just as much. So a lot of these kids will will have stomach issues. The babies may be low weight and not gain weight as they should because they're so anxious all the time. And as kids get older, they're edgy. They may seem to have mood swings, you know, where they're going along just fine, and all of a sudden... They're in this state of high alert and they revert back to behaviors of an earlier age when that trauma happened. And so a lot of that is misinterpreted as mood swings. And then they might kind of have a hair trigger temper 
They're just always ready to fight and be aggressive. And then for the last category then is avoidant. Once you sense that danger and you feel like it's coming near, you're going to do everything you can to avoid it. So an example, when our son was little, probably by the time he was six months old, if we were in a doctor's office or a hospital with him and a person, an adult walked through the door with a white coat and a stethoscope, our son was trying to crawl over our shoulders and get behind us. He wanted to avoid the source of his pain. Wow. He did not want to be near it. And as kids get older, that might be more like they don't want to go certain places. Maybe they don't want to go to school if that's where they've been bullied, or they don't want to go to the dentist because it always hurts. So there's that kind of avoidance. And as they get older and into their teenage years, it can often become things like substance abuse, which is a form of avoidance. It helps, makes it easier to deal with the world out there. You kind of go into a different place. Um, things like cutting and then a lot of different risky behaviors that are ways to just avoid what is triggering your PTSD. Wow. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I can completely see how one one Leads. stage goes leads to the next to to that avoidance and uh, even to the, mm -hmm. the risky behaviors. That makes total sense. Yeah. 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 It really does. Once you get it and you think, hmm, you know, if I see someone who's got a substance abuse issue or hear of someone, my first thought is always, I wonder what happened to them. Mm. That makes that, that makes going into that basically altered state of consciousness, a better place to be than being in the world where we live. Sure. It makes you, uh, makes you want to come alongside them with a heart of compassion, uh, instead of the, instead of being judgmental and pushing away. So it's, uh, it does. Yep. On page 110, you list eight common misdiagnoses for childhood trauma, and that includes ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, bipolar disorder or mood, disruptive mood dysregulation, ODD, oppositional defiant disorder, panic disorders, anxiety disorders, depression, phobias, and RAD or reactive attachment disorder. And as I read that list, I couldn't help but wonder about the implications of a misdiagnosis for one of those, particularly the panic disorders, anxiety disorders, and depression, instead of, say, PTSD or trauma, for a parent caregiver of children with special needs. And I know that's a little off topic from your book, but what are your thoughts on that? Well, as a totally non-professional <laughs> in the field of mental illness, but as a parent who lived through all of this, I would say probably most of the time yeah. that what you're dealing with is uh, something related to their own untreated secondary trauma, which is also known yes. as compassion fatigue or caregiving stress. And I'm actually right now doing a lot of interviews with parents because I'm working on research for a book proposal about compassion fatigue, secondary trauma, and um, caregiving stress in parents who are raising kids with special needs. Mm -hmm. And when I ask them uh, what their physical symptoms are, they are usually panic, anxiety, and depression. And my yes. guess is they're actually dealing with their own trauma issues that need to be addressed and dealt with. Because you can basically... In what I have observed and understand and see when someone is treated for PTSD, the anxiety and the depression and all of that other stuff calms down and those symptoms go away. 
because anxiety and phobia and and depression and a bunch of that, those are actually symptoms of PTSD. So, you know, it's kind of that same thing. We can treat the anxiety or the depression with medication, but that's like putting a Band-Aid on that skin knee. Right. If we go in and really clean it up and help them process everything, we're going to get rid of the PTSD and the other things will go away. So I think that's really true. It's really hard for parents to admit that, though, because they think it means a couple things. They think it means that they're saying they don't love their kids. Right. You know, to say that having this child has caused me to have these illnesses, but that's not it. It's because mm-hmm. they love their kids so well that they've mm-hmm. gotten these illnesses exactly. <laughs> because they tried to do everything for them. And then the other thing is they just feel judged, you know, that just admitting I need help for some reason that makes them look weak to the world or whatever. And we need, again, we need to come alongside those parents and assure them that your responses are normal. Every parent right. raising a child with special needs deals with these things. This is your normal reaction to an abnormal situation. Now let's see what we can do to get you healthy so you can care for your child to the best of your ability. Yes. 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 Yeah. That's so true. I know Sarah and I have both experienced PTSD mm-hmm. or caregiver fatigue uh, to different degrees. And um, yeah, I mean, there's, it's, it, it keeps building until the point it can't build anymore. And then it makes itself known and you're like, oh, Okay, I can't ignore this anymore. Yeah, no, so it's, it's, yeah. it's good. And and I'm as we talk with that book and uh, yes. hearing what comes from that, I think there'll be a lot of parents that uh, will be having light bulb moments as they're reading through it and say, oh, that's me. I'm going to redirect back to the book here. So uh, we'll do a quick switch of lanes here. So uh, we talked about, you know, what the signs are and what the uh, some of the symptoms are as the children from young to even teenagers to adults. I'm sure as we were going through that, a lot of parents were saying, that's my child. Mm-hmm. I know as we were going through it, like, wow, there's there's some things there we need to pay attention to. What would you say to that parent? What are the, the treatment options if they recognize their, their child in any of those or any of those symptoms in their child, I should say? Yeah, the good news is there are lots of treatment options and there are getting to be more and more effective and sophisticated treatment options all the time. Because just like the um, age of modern medicine for physical health, when it came along and we started getting all the antibiotics and all these things that have just changed treatment, just as that kind of happened in a rapid, a rapid series of events about 100 years ago, The same thing is kind of happening with mental health care right now. We're learning more about the brain and how it works and what we can do to calm it and help it. So there are lots of options. What I would tell any parent looking for treatment is that they need to be looking for more than talk therapy. We talked a little bit ago about our kinds of memory and that those early memories are nonverbal and they are sensations, smells, feelings, physical bodily sensations, uh, all of that, images, all of that kind of thing. But they are held in the brain without words. So if you take your child to talk therapy, to talk, help them talk through memories that don't have words, mm-hmm. your child can't talk about what they can't talk about. So that's not going to be able to do much. You need to look for a therapy that kind of goes around and comes in from another angle. Now, the treatment our son received 
used a lot of, there was hypnosis and guided imagery. And basically what they were trying to do was help him access those nonverbal memories and create a narrative for them so that he could begin to talk about them. And so to help create that narrative, they used some hypnosis and then they did a lot of drawing with him so he could draw the things that had happened to him and narrate them and talk about what he needed as a baby to get through those things. So gradually, basically what was happening was these memories, these nonverbal memories being stored in the right brain, they were helping him get them to cross the corpus callosum, which is the thick cord between our right and left brain, into the left brain where we have words and we have a past and a present and a future so that he could get that story out of the present nonverbal sense in his in his right brain, to the left brain, and his story had a beginning, a middle, and an end. So whenever he got triggered then after that, when there was a trigger for that original trauma, instead of immediately going into that reactive state and into behaviors that were appropriate, he could tell himself, wait, 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 that's a past memory. That happened. Here's how it began. Here's the middle. Here's the end. It's over. I'm safe. I don't need to react like that. So whatever treatment you're trying to get for your child, it may not be exactly like what our son went through, but you need to find a treatment that will help your child access those memories. And some good treatments that do that are EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization reprocessing. Uh, Play therapy can be helpful because you're not just talking about the event, you're reenacting the event. Neurofeedback can be helpful. Pet therapy. There are a couple others as kids get older called parts works and internal family structures. They can all be helpful. The main thing to do that I, I would want people to be aware of is that you need to find someone who is a traumatologist, has some kind of certification in treating trauma, not just your garden variety mental illnesses, but trauma specific. You need to make sure that they aren't just using talk. And then you need to make sure that they're willing to work with children. Usually they can start treatment for kids at age three or later, because at age three is when they start getting enough vocabulary to develop that story that reminds them it's over. And then I want to recommend one really, really good book Mm. that came out about the same time as my book. Um, And this book is called The Body Keeps the Score. And the, do- the doctor who wrote it is Basil van der Kolk. Mm. And he is like the grandfather of trauma treatment. He started working on trauma in kids in the 60s. And he just has a rich history of, of working with different treatments, doing research. And in that book, he goes through every treatment out there and he cites the research mm. and gives you his opinion then of, what makes it effective or non-effective. And so that is a really good resource, far better than anything I can do as a, a lay person. All right. Well, we will put a link to that in our show notes so people can go to it directly and find it easily. Of course, along with a link to your book, because yeah, we're pretty biased to your book as well. So Aww, thank you. <laughs> and you really distill the information down and make it quick to consume for yes. busy yeah. Oh, I wish I wish Van der Kolk's book had been out before I wrote mine, though, because I would have been using it a lot more. <laughs> <in here. laughs> now, would your advice be the same? 
Well, let me back up. We've we've talked we've talked with parents of children who are nonverbal, and they feel that their child was exhibiting signs of PTSD. They've wondered how to help their child. And I'll say that's older children. Yeah, it's older. older okay. Mm-hmm. Would your advice be the same to pursue a meeting with a traumatologist that specializes in non-speaking type therapies, or what would your advice be in that situation? Yeah, I think I would advise that if the child has receptive language, you know, so they can Mm -hmm. understand, they just can't verbalize, you know, I would think that that would be possible. So if they can understand language, you know, they can hear the story retold. They may not be able to tell it themselves in words, but if they can hear it and process it, they, I would think those things would work well. That would be something to be sure to ask a therapist. Um, you know, when you, when you were working with them, there are some therapists I know who do work with people who are nonverbal. Again, if, if you have a child, um, who maybe can't speak, but can write or can use a communication device like an iPad or, or some other kind of communication board, there are, there are ways to communicate. So I would certainly not just say, well, this is, this is not an option for me because my child can't talk. I would say, hmm, I'm going to have to look a little harder and find somebody willing to work on it with my child. Yeah, that makes complete sense. We also put the question out there on our Facebook page asking our audience, you know, what questions do they have for you? We got one by the name of Ash Bricker replied and asked, how can we help our son cope with things like port flushes, needles, doctor and dental visits? We've tried probably all the normal things, but his fears are huge. He's been a mm-hmm. pincushion since he was four days old hundreds of blood draws and IVs, dozens of hospital stays. The medical trauma has hit him hard. He's almost five years old. What would yeah. you say to Ash? There's a couple thoughts that come to mind. One thing is there's a therapy that's called desensitization therapy, you know, where you slowly get the child where they're willing to do, to be closer. Like um, I have a friend whose little girl had to get a a CPAP machine and she was really scared of it. Mm-hmm. And so they, first of all, just when she slept at night, they had the CPAP machine out in the living room shut and then they opened it. And then, you know, it came down the hall and eventually it could be under her bed. And then she was willing to use it for five minutes before she went to sleep. And slowly, 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 they got her to be able to use it. And there are therapists who work with children with that kind of therapy. And so that might be a possibility. Another one is I would suggest that they go to the website for the Children's Hospital of St. Paul and Minneapolis, Children's Hospital of Minnesota, whatever, and poke around in there. They have a doctor there who is passionate about making sure children do not feel pain, any pain during any kinds of procedures that they do at the hospital. And his name is escaping me. It's a long Germanic name. And he is the head of their pain and palliative care unit for children. Hmm. And I would suggest, yeah. And they're one of like a few years ago, they were one of eight hospitals in the country that had made a pact that we will not allow children to feel pain or fear when they're with us. If that starts happening, we'll find another way. So they do a lot of work with lidocaine. You know, if they have to have blood draws or anything, they put lidocaine on, which is a numbing agent. 
so that they are going to feel that. And then they have a lot of distractive things, like they have video games and stuff that they will have the kids work on so that they don't even notice the procedure that's being done on them. Pretty amazing stuff. Mm. And so that might be a resource for them to look into and to find out where clinics are near them or to just get some ideas. And then again, I would just get that child in working with a therapist right away uh, now to see what they could start unpacking even now so that his fear levels go down. Excellent. Great, great advice. And yeah, that sounds like an excellent resource. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, you're welcome. Heard about it at a conference and I was just like, where have you been all our children's lives? Oh, I bet. Yes. <laughs> I bet we'll have to get the word out about him. Mm-hmm. Now, when I read your book, I know that there were points in your book where I had tears in my eyes and they weren't sad tears. They were tears of hope and relief. And at one point I wrote in the margin and I put, there are answers. There is hope. And we may not be stuck where we are forever. Mm-hmm. So What would you say to the parent, like me, who recognizes this in their child to encourage them? Exactly what you said. We aren't stuck here forever. You know, my son had most of his traumatic events from from birth to age five, and he didn't receive treatment until age 26. Mm. And there was still great, great healing that he received. If he could have been treated right along, well, Now, you know, if he'd been in a hospital like the one in Minnesota, where their passion was to make sure children didn't feel any pain, all of that could have been prevented. But even if there was still some trauma that occurred, there are so many treatments. And the sooner you can start them, as young as age three, the sooner a child can get out from under the burden of that trauma. And the other thing is, not only then are if you treat them early, are they treated for the trauma those behaviors they used as coping behaviors that help them get out of the original trauma situation. And so those are the repeat behaviors they keep using whenever there's a trigger. The longer you wait for treatment, the more likely those poor behaviors are to become habits. And habits are really hard to break. So if you can get in there and treat the trauma before it can really get embedded deeply and create these habitually bad behaviors, the more hope there is. So my suggestion would be, and you know, I'm not getting commissions from mental health care therapists, <laughs> but if your child has gone through a lot of trauma and they're young, even if you don't see a lot of behaviors being exhibited, I might just take them into a therapist when they're young and see if there's anything to process. Um, for one thing, when kids are little, they're more willing to go with their parents. You know, you don't have, as the older they get in the teens and, and, you know, middle school, teens age, they might not be as cooperative and they have to buy into it for it to be effective. So why not do it when they still trust you and are willing to buy in because you say it's a good thing? Otherwise, you may have to wait like our son did until they realize it's an issue and then they buy into it and want to get treatment. So there is hope um, and just never stop looking. And, and one other thing I wanted to mention was that if, if you don't know how to find a therapist, I have a post on my blog um, and my blog is differentdream.com. And if you go there and just put in the search bar, uh, how to find a therapist, I have a post that I wrote. Um, and my sister, who is a mental health care therapist, 
help me with the particulars of it, but it explains how to find a therapist in your area, wherever you are in the United States. And it begins with going to the Psychology Today website and typing in your your, um, zip code, and then it brings up a list of therapists in your area. And then the post goes on and talks about that here's what you look for in that listing. Here's what you want to be sure of about um, insurance, questions you want to ask to see if they take your insurance. And then what should you watch for when you go into that therapist? And how do you know you should stick with that therapist or is it time to find somebody else? So I would encourage people to just go there um, and use that guide to help them start the search in their area. That sounds excellent. And we'll put a link to that in our show notes. Yeah, it sounds like a very valuable resource. So thank you. Well, yeah, it's one of those where people started asking me, well, how can you, I would get emails. Can you recommend a therapist (laughs) in my area? And I'm like, I'm from Iowa. I don't know what they have in Florida. So, so the blog post makes that a lot easier situation. Perfect. Perfect. Excellent. Good. Yeah. I could see how there'd be a huge need for that. And yeah, this expands much broader than Iowa. So that's good. And we're so glad for the time that we had with you today. I know it was uh, a huge hope, help to, uh, many, yeah, many to so many people. And I yeah. know our, our encouragement, our audience will find the, the, conversation encouraging thank you so much for the time today and yeah we always love chatting with you well i love to chat with you too and thank you for the opportunity you know if there's one thing in all the writing i do and the speaking i do that i'm most passionate about i think it's this issue because it just can make such a huge difference for a family once they find that treatment and it makes such a huge difference for the health of their child and and that's what we want we want children to be healthy and independent and maximize the potential God's given them. Yes. Yes. Yep. All right.